0: Listening to the Cattle Station Classroom podcast, where we learn about the North Australian beef industry and answer your questions. So it doesn't matter how far from town you are, because we're bringing the classroom to you. Welcome back to another Station Sticky Beak episode. This series was created to share an insight into why pastoralists do what they do, given their circumstances, whether it be location, country type, rainfall zone, infrastructure, ownership model, market, or any of the other many factors influencing management decisions. In each Station Sticky Beak episode, I'll chat to station owners and managers about a range of topics, broadly covering country, infrastructure, cattle, and people to show that there are many ways to achieve positive outcomes for people, livestock, the land, and business. In this episode, I sit down with John Henwood, who, with his wife Annette, owned and operated Fossil Downs Station in the central Kimberley for over 50 years. John has a wealth of knowledge and experience, and with the assistance of Jardine MacDonald, we had a great chat with John about Fossil Downs and what he learnt during his time there. Before we got into the official sticky beak line of questioning, we were having a bit of a yarn about water and fence placement in relation to scrub bulls, and that's where this episode starts
1: The secret of isolating cattle is keeping away from the waters and all in all our fence lines we just followed the high ground everywhere
0: so Where were the shorthorns watering then?
1: Well, away, well away from the boundary, well away from the fence where we had the fence, not the boundary where we had the... Years ago we put up a fence for TB purposes to... to, It was funded, like we were told if we did it we could get some funding assistance from the TB, which we did, and we put it all up on the high ridgy ground and away from waters... And we had no we hardly had a broken wire and we never got a never got a, an outside hardly ever got an outside animal inside because it was too far away from the waters and that's what it, it tells you, you know, then not to put a put a water near the, the fence. My wife and I were putting a fence up one day, near an old fence when we first went to Fossil, we were putting it up. This bull came up, took one look at the fence, pushed its way through to get water. Mm. On, the other, on the other side, and so I moved that fence we never had any more trouble again I moved it a mile away and there's no more trouble then
0: but that would also depend on whether or not the cattle had water on the other side of the fence oh, they've, had know, water
1: that... they had water at different places but yeah so we're just know,
0: making it a little bit less uh, making it a little bit harder for them to get to the water like the man made waters and obviously where you're fencing them out of where or what you're fencing them into I guess uh yeah, it was more is We're just making the option easier for them to go to those waters or that natural water rather than come to your waters with your cattle.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: And that actually worked.
1: Well, that's, yeah, well, if you, um, on one one place was, uh, the boundary was probably five mile away and there's water on that, right on the boundary. And when we put the fence up, we had a dam was a couple of miles inside. We got no more outside cattle in because they used to stop. Rather than trying to keep coming to where we had our water, they all stopped out there.
0: Mm. Interesting. Yeah. You learn something new every day. So yeah. we're going to go through some of these themes. Um, so we've got a bit of a structure to this conversation. And the first broad theme is country. So I want to ask you about the country type of fossil downs um, and in particular, you know, the seasons.
1: Well, the country was... There was river flat country um, that... When I first went there, was mainly Buffalo and Gallon's Curse. And there was a lot of um, semi-flood country that was... Look, I don't know what they call the grasses, but it's pretty pretty useless for stock unless you eat it, really hammer it and eat it down because it, um, it's one of those difficult grasses. You can't burn at the right time. And the only time it'll burn is before the wet and you kill all the trees and all your blue bush and everything. So... You've got to try and get your stock in there as early as you can after the wet and eat it eat it down as much as you can. The more cattle you can put in, the better.
2: Is that the big, and tall, like, sorghum grass, annual sorghum or something like oh, that?
1: Near, near, the, near the house it's there, near those, grass. you know, when you yeah. drive up that creek, near the house yeah. there. Okay. There wasn't a lot of that, thank goodness. Um, and then there's a the black soil, Mitchell Flinders, and um, grass... And then when you got out into Pindan car grass, it was called corkscrew, kangaroo grass, um, spear grass and all that rubbish stuff. And um, then we had spinifex, hard spinifex. We didn't have – we had very little soft spinifex until you got up to the top end a bit. But um, in, the, in the paddocks we had, we, we hardly had any soft spinifex to eat. And... Um, uh, that sort of sums up most of the the, the creaky country we had. It, oh, all, there was all sorts of things growing in that, you know, different types of grasses and and um, like all those native grasses, unless you eat them when they're early and young, they get too rank and tall, and they don't the cattle won't eat it. So, if you our motto was, if you can't eat it, burn it. And so if you knew you weren't going to be able to eat it, you had to burn it early in the year, not not late in the year.
0: So most of the feed sources on fossil downs was grass-based. Was there much top feed that cattle would browse? No, no,
1: no. no pretty pretty no, much no, all head down. It's all grass, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay.
0: And uh, what about, you know, you have a very defined wet and dry season in the Kimberley. Did you have a... What some people refer to as a green date that you worked off, like a, a date that you expected the rain or the growing season to start.
1: We'd always used to say Christmas time it was after Christmas, but at Fossil, most of the rain didn't start till before Christmas. If you're lucky, you got some before, but most of it was, you know, after Christmas because my wife and I used to wait till everyone else had been away for a holiday, and then when they came back, we used to go down. Um, after Christmas, we'd always we only ever spent one Christmas away from Fossil, and um, we always left after Christmas, and we could nearly drive out every time. So, mm, and it's incredible. And yeah, the yeah. biggest the biggest floods we had that flood in eighty three that didn't start raining till the, I think it was the fifth of March or the eighth of March. Um, so that's how late the wet started that year.
0: Wow. And would you say in your time, you know, and yeah, there was 50-odd years you were there, that you had a fairly consistent seasons? Or was it quite variable?
1: Oh, fairly consistent. Um, when we first went to fossil, we are in a very dry time. Um, from the 70s to the 83, it was pretty pretty ordinary, you know. And we did stocked a lot of cattle. We sold... Um, you know, a lot of cattle off to lighten off and, um, well, we had to, you know, because we had no paddocks or no control of them before the, you know, we started putting paddocks up and doing all that, you know, and uh, moving the stock, you know.
2: And we'll definitely touch on that um, note that you've, uh, that perloism you've told us about with, uh, once you got into your rotation of stock, um, you would then, in those drier years when the seasons were, uh, kind of failed or they didn't really come. You didn't get much of a wet season that you would um, open the country up and, and allow things to spread. But
0: mm. So why, n- why don't you tell us how your grazing strategies were before, say, the floods that came in 83, 84 and then how you changed it after that point because that seems to be the turning point for you. Well,
1: before 83 it was like continuous grazing um, um, and – we had no control of the, the stock really, um, because um, well we had we had put paddocks up, but it wasn't until the floods came that made us to move the stock and and have more control of the stock that we started to get the benefits of the regeneration of the pastures.
2: Incredible. I was reading in this uh, incredible book that you've lent us that uh, will be coming out soon. And I'm sure we'll make sure we plug it throughout the podcast. If that's right, Steph, thanks. Um, that you had about 15, you put together about 15 odd paddocks when you went to fossil and you jumped on that infrastructure, um, on that infrastructure train and you were, you were bringing, um, you were building that infrastructure on the property. Um, but then post floods, you kind of went to, fewer paddocks than that hey john you kind of had to realign a few of those fence lines that you've told us about sorry repeating it a bit but it you had to realign a few of those fences off the um off the river country there um you've already mentioned about having fences high up on the catchment but were there a lot of adjustments that you made with all those fences so you went from 15 paddocks to a few less, or you no?
1: Know, well, there we we there was quite a few fences we pulled up. The original old fences that were there we pulled up, and a lot of fencing I did. Um, I had to pull it all up too, and it was about um, I get nineteen kilometres of one fence, so I had to pull it all up again because um, the the um. Oh, the creeks and the maintenance and the flooding and all that, and, and that actual fence was the one we moved further out to make it so we didn't have to have the the big maintenance on it. And, mm, um, further out from the flood yeah, prone, and from, from the, wa- the frontage and, eh? and from the waters. Yeah. yeah, and when we got it out, you know, moved it out, it um it made all the made all the difference. I actually got the uh, idea of that fencing on the hills from a place called Turner um, River up in the north of um. Halls Creek. I flew over there and I saw the fence up on these ridges and I thought, what would you put a fence up there for? And then it, after all the trouble I went through, I suddenly realised why they had the fences up there and so we started doing it. and It's the best, you know, the best practice out ever.
0: So, sorry, break that down for me. You've got a fence on the ridge. We're talking like down the bottom of the ridge or the top of the ridge? No, top of the ridge. But yeah. isn't weren't you saying earlier that you... Sorry, weren't you saying earlier that you use the ridges as natural fence lines? Anyway, to oh, stop the this, cattle moving. This is not
1: a. This is not a range. This is just a ridge. Oh, okay. The ranges you could use as a as a, um, a, a fence line, but the the ridges you can't. You know.
0: Okay, and so this was. With st- ridgy
1: country, you know.
0: Okay, and you so could, and you're putting that up so that it wouldn't get touched by the waters.
1: That's right. And, and the stock, we hardly um, – I was talking to the manager the other day and he said he's hardly fixed a wire on it. And um, so, you know, and we just used to fly it every year with a helicopter and um, we hardly ever had a land to fix a wire. It's incredible. Yeah.
0: So what, what were the impacts of making that decision though when you had your fence closer down to the river frontage? You could obviously access some more of that country – uh, and then by moving that fence further away, you're kind of locking away more river country. Did that really impact your grazing strategy at all, or your cattle management? Well,
1: that, that, where, that, where I'm talking about that that fence was, there was no, no fences there at all. There, there, um, when I went to Fossil, there was only one big paddock called Dariara Paddock, and they had the Bullet Paddock, and they had a series of little paddocks where they used to put their bulls or... Um, wieners or things in, and um, it was just all open, more or less open range type country, and uh, so we put a wiener paddock up, and and um, thing that was the best thing ever, you know, new manager, new ideas, and all that, and it was one of the worst things I ever did because I, because it was so bushy country, it made the cattle sort of go a bit silly. When we went to muster them, we had a lot of trouble mustering them out if you can keep those wieners out in open country, they seem to be... settles them down more because they, they... I don't know what it was, whether it was dingoes or what, but um, it's, it was just... The cattle we got out of that paddock were just completely different to when we put them in, you know, because they are all handled cattle, you know. That's and, very interesting. Uh, and um, the, the other... Um, the only fence that we moved were ones that got washed over by the floods and all that, and they were the ones we concentrated on. We had to keep up a river fence on the go-go boundary, um, but we put a new fence up all along the edge of the flood, and we used to move the steers out of that river country back into um, that higher country, you know, in the wet, and... Um, but uh this it wasn't the steers so much as we had't we had to move them, but it was the cows the, the cows we were getting the really biggest results of pasture regeneration from we got good results with the steers too, but the biggest results we got with were the cows because we were the steers only had two paddocks whereas the cows had three moves you know and um don't ask me why but <laughs> at uh Look what have we what we've been trying to plant and grow, and we used to rip the country up and with the bulldoze and plant the seed and all that, and it would grow, but then the cattle just used to wipe it out, and then it wasn't until we, you know, started moving the cattle permanently, that all the regeneration started. You know. Okay, so
0: pre nineteen eighty two nineteen eighty three, so eighty two no 83, 84, the cattle was set stopped uh and generally though during the wet season kept off the low country like you know the flood out country but in 83 84 there was a bit of that flood out country they could get to because it had been such a, a dry time leading up to it they were kind of able to to graze you know let out to graze what what was left uh and then that flood came you lost um some cattle and and some infrastructure and then it was after that, that when you re replaced some of the infrastructure and moved the cattle away, that you saw changes in the country. And then from that first change that you saw, you decided to try and replicate that by moving the cattle more frequently. What did that actually look like? So say, you know, how often were you moving them and how many cattle were you running in a mob together? Did you, did you find that the number of cattle made a difference or, or was it how frequently you were moving them?
1: Well, we, Look, I, after the – the when the floods came, it was mainly um, uh, short horn cattle out along the rivers that would con- continuously graze. The few cattle we had of good quality – we tried Brahmins, as I said, and, and that was on a very small scale inside the paddock and it was just, um, you know, continuous grazing. And – it wasn't we sold all those cattle from outside got what was left you know we got rid of all them and um we sold 4000 cows out of what we had inside that's we sold all the short ones and we kept the wieners, just the weaner heifers from the those cows and we started off with a 1000 crossbred heif- heifers and um we were using the cows we were selling to get our income in and rather than sell steers and bullocks. and then we um just kept everything that we had a, a, a you know like a indicus crossbreed type animal. We kept all the all the heifers to get our numbers up quickly, and we used to buy top quality bulls. We didn't go and buy herd bulls. We bought stud bulls. And uh, everyone said, as I said, everyone said we were mad but in the end it paid off because we end up with one of the, you know, overall best herds in the Kimberleys quicker than anyone else. And um, so I've got no regrets of buying, you know, expensive bulls but um, we did, look it was I suppose it a reduction of numbers and then having to move the cattle and then slowly building up to 6,000 in the mob. We got up to 7,000, but we had trouble with the water because we couldn't get enough water. So we sold us down to a thousand, went back to 6,000. It seemed to be a comfortable number to, to, you know, keep our waters up. And, um, and that's, that's what it was like when we sold it. And if we'd, as I said, if we'd had the good prices that they're getting now, we'd, we could have probably still been there with all the extra waters that we wanted to put in, but we couldn't put in, you know.
0: So yeah, when you were way. moving them, sorry, were you moving them as one mob of 6,000 head at a time or did you were you running two or three or ten mobs on the property? Well,
1: they're all in one mob, but we used to open the gates in the afternoon and let them move themselves to start with and then we just had to go and you just fly around, make a bit of noise and all the rest, they all knew where their mates had gone and they'd... Go there, you hardly had to push them. And if you came across a cow with a baby calf, you always left it. And you could always tell a cow when you're mustering that it's got a calf because it was always trying to get back. So you'd let it go back and and then keep mustering because you mightn't have seen the calf. But if it had a big udder, you'd have to look, see if it had a big udder. First had a big udder, you always leave it. And you go up to the gate three or four days later and there's a the cow and calf waiting at the gate wanting to come come in. And the same with the, if the river was too high, if there's too much water in the river, you'd leave the cows and calves, and then after a few days you'd go out or five days or whatever, you'd go out to the gate again and there were the cow and calves. they the cow had chosen to walk it's, when the calf was strong enough it knew when it could come over. And um, they're amazing animals, you know, isn't they
2: I have a migratory pattern. Sorry to jump in there, Steph, but I'm just thinking, just to paint this picture. So this is your breeding herd, John. You've got six thousand ish breeders in this big mob, and they're moving through about three locations. So you did touch on it there. You had so you've gone from before the floods and things there was continuous grazing with number of paddocks, but then you kind of you you had this more of a broad rotational scheme with maybe three areas for your breeding mob that they kind of rotated through. Breeding mob being about six thousand odd head um that went through the landscape from high to kind of medium and then to the flood prone prone river frontage land as well. Um, but yeah, that's kind of just just to take a step back and paint that oh, yeah. picture as well. But like you're saying and you've you've mentioned this to to me about um how the stock they did need to get their head around this migration, as it were, um, at the start. So you had to do a bit of pushing at the start, but then once they got the idea, they knew this kind of every year they went, you know, through these three cool paddocks that they each had a crack at and yeah. they would learn that rotation yeah, in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And, yeah. I, and going back to your answer, um, in the wet paddock, We had it, we had 10 days, we used to do 10 days just quietly moving the mob into the smaller paddocks. We'd do sections at a time. And, um, once you started the cattle off, they used to, we didn't go down the back and start at the back. We started at the front to get rid of the front ones first. So we didn't end up with too many trying to get through the gate at the same time because, and we'd, when we put them in, we always used to leave the gate open. So the cows that didn't have calves could go back for their calves, you know, and a lot of little things like that, you know. And But people said to me, oh, it, it took you 10 days. It mightn't have taken 10 days, 10 musters or what. I'm using that as a figure. But, um, I used to say to people, well, how many paddocks do you muster and how many paddocks you got, you know, and, and they'd say 10. And I said, well, what's the difference? They had to do 10, 10 days mustering. So
0: I just want to make sure I understand this correctly. Fossil was just over 400,000 hectares, but this we're talking in the 80s here when you started to change up your management, your grazing management and it wasn't fully developed back then. Um but you're running your entire herd of, you know, 6,000 breeders as one in one mob.
1: That's right. Mm.
0: I just um I guess I've never seen that before, so I'm trying to imagine what it looks like because there's no one else Doing that out here, and but what would your bullocks or your sail... Did you have other little mobs elsewhere like your well, sail cows? Had, had the steers. Yeah. the steers
1: were in a, in a separate area. Se- yeah, separate. And mob. and um, we had to keep our spay cows in a separate area. Our heifers, we just kept in the in the paddocks where we'd uh, regenerate with that ruby bush and stuff, you know, because mm-hmm. like, they they really did well on the ruby bush, and when when the time was right, we'd take them out and put them out in the cow paddock, in the wet paddock. And then with when the, the other mob. cattle yep. yeah, yeah, when yeah. the when when the other mob came in, we'd put them out with all the cows, the cows they'd learn what to eat and what to do with the older older generation, you know? So how so, does
0: that work if you're running your entire mob, your entire breeding mob as one when it comes time throughout the year to do either one or two rounds of mustering and bring them in and process them, are you just taking cuts of? They're all in one paddock, so you're just taking cuts of that paddock at a time.
1: Yeah, and yeah. then
0: do you like? Did you? I guess do you try and time your muster around a paddock change time so you take a cut and then let them back into the next paddock? Because otherwise, how do you know if you're going to remuster something else unless you're baying tailing them all? Or-
1: well, we used to, we put them all into those lower paddocks. You know, like the secondary wet paddocks yeah. and and uh, there's a big long billabong and we, I used to go out in the afternoon and just try and judge the amount of cattle that we had and I'd just quietly go f- fly back and forwards a couple of times to get them moving and then I'd go away and land and the horses used to come in behind and just pick up that mob of cattle and take them on but then that gave the cows and cows Cows a chance to get their calves. If they left the calves behind, they'd go back. You wouldn't. You wouldn't go there and just go whoosh, whoosh, whoosh and take a cut out like that. You'd go away and let them let them sort themselves out. And and they, the cows got to know that they were going to move on, so they were quite willingly all all went. But the others were quite happy to stop where they were. You know, and they just they didn't they didn't move.
0: So you're saying there was. A couple of paddocks down on the river frontage. So rather than this three paddock system, was it sort of like in, in a way? So you had like your one big paddock up your top, your higher country and then another paddock in your like, your medium country. And then down on that river frat, river frontage, rather than having, um, just one paddock, you had several. So at one point, were you splitting that 6,000 breeders up into several little paddocks along the bottom? Is that just for like must ease of processing purposes or?
1: no we, we put them though we did have three a few little paddocks, but um we we used mainly one paddock with the three six thousand in it and mm-hmm. um we used to use the other paddocks for putting other animals in like we had one paddock we had to keep for the weaners we'd put the weaners in, and then the other paddock that we um said that the cattle wouldn't you know was rank grass we used to try and put the cattle into that at the same time because all was all part of the same creek system. So that was sort of two two little paddocks. They weren't big paddocks, they were little paddocks, but they weren't in there for long because we'd muster them into there and then we'd brand out. And, so- when, and when we branded out, we used to put them in a lane and then the lane went all the way out, it went like 40, 50 k's out um, to, to onto the river. where They used to go to the river. So they had the one big wet paddock... And then they moved down to the smaller paddock for processing and then the, we had a lane system that took them out. Um, it was a kilometre-wide lane, so it was actually a lane paddock. It wasn't a lane walking lane as such. It was a lane paddock. They've since put up a lane beside it, which we were going to do anyhow, um, to walk cattle in, you know. To, and um, But the... the and when we, when we put them all in the paddock to, in the lane to go out we hardly had to do any mustering because the cows knew where they were going to go after being processed they all just virtually walked out themselves we just had to pick up the stragglers and we had to cut into about three places and it's cut into more now which we were going to do too um, and they just staged out through those so you just, you know, move them up and, you know, they all willingly walked out, you know.
0: I know I keep asking the same question. I'm just a bit slow on the uptake sometimes though. So if you're running them as one mob, how did you bring them into the yards? Obviously you're not bringing in 6,000 head at a time to the yards, but how are you bringing them out?
1: About a 1,000 head.
0: Okay, so you're so you're taking a cart, processing them, and then kicking them out into this kilometre-wide L- lane paddock to go to their next place?
1: Out to the, out to the you know, the... This the, the next, the yeah, second. and then you take
0: another cut, kick yeah. them out again, yeah. another yeah. cut. Okay, yeah. Yeah. think I'm finally getting it, John. <laughs> Makes sense,
2: finally. Well, yeah. Well, we- so I was, uh, I was going to jump in there, John. You've, you've explained to me something really interesting that um, I quite enjoyed looking and thinking about uh, with this three kind of. You've talked about three land t- uh, kind of areas, three areas that you rotated those uh, that breeding herd through. And what was really interesting was the great kind of um, balance that you were doing with uh, balancing the quality of feed. Um, look, we're sitting here and we're pretty big fans of the whole holistic management side of things. Um, but obviously, one of the one of the big problems that the whole holistic management thing cops is our oh, well, you know animal production quality. You obviously produced incredibly good quality animals, and that is a balance that needs to be struck um in things um so john you explained to me that you were and we've we've been talking about this but i know i appreciate that it's difficult for people listening if, if you don't have a map and you can't get your head around the context but essentially you've gone from your highest country in the best time of the year so over our wet season our growing season when it's the the pastures in the best condition it could be because it's growing it's green it's awesome but it's your your kind of worst country. It's the high country, um, not as much in it. You then move through there after the wet season down into your kind of middle country, which is in the middle at the middle time of the year. Only for a short period. For a yeah. short period of time. Yeah. And then, it, then you move into the kind of frontage country later in the dry season. So we're now towards the lower country End of the scale in terms of your feed quality. It's been the longest since the growing season, Um, so it's the least quality feed, um, but it's the best country. And you've kind of balanced those two factors: your landscape type and your kind of seasonal uh, pasture quality um, to help give the cattle that best balance across the whole year, which is really, really incredible. Um, But also, you're kind of balancing that moisture. You got you know moisture up the top. And they're feeding up there and then they're moving down uh, through the landscape. And you're also, by doing so, essentially letting that real fragile bottom end of your um, landscape, the lower side of uh, the landscape, accumulate as much as possible during that wet season. So it's growing. It's got a bit of a spell generally and it can grow as much as possible. Um, And you're then moving that material back up to the top of the system at the uh for the next season essentially moving that material around. So look, that's what I took out of yeah. your explanation of yeah. those for the for the breeder mob and you're saying you basically did uh a similar thing with just the two paddocks for the steers, is yeah, that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah. I haven't heard about this, John. Why have you been keeping this from me? What's going <laughs> on? Um so you had a yeah. two paddock system with the steers. Yeah. So you also found a bit of rotation and just quick uh, rough numbers was it about a 1,000 head of steers that you'd hang, hang, be oh, hanging on to? 2,500, two two and a thousand? half. Two and two a and half? half. Three. Yeah, yeah. And they had a similar, was that like a frontage and a yeah, yeah, higher yeah, ground?
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. But, wow, um, cool. But saw better region with the cows. Yeah,
1: yeah. Look, if we could have, if we, we were going to split the country up more and we got more waters, we were going to split the country into more paddocks because the more, you know, like not too many, but the, um, if I could have done three or four moves like into paddocks, it would have probably been better than it was. But it, it just with the, the little bit of country and fences we had, it, it, it um, was unbelievable, you know. And so people know that we went from trying to get stuff to grow to it growing so well we used to pick the seed by hand, and then we got we had to buy a machine to help with Mel McDonald and you know our Kimberley. The Raincane West Kimberley Group. LCDC. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we bought a machine to, to actually collect the seed and we're the only place in Australia I know that we're actually doing that after burning and stocking or burning, stocking and burning, you know.
0: So I've got a question. Wet season is the growing season. It's when the protein and energy is at its peak in the pastures and dry season is basically, you know, your protein and energy and feed, and digestibility just, you know, starts to decline. So wet season is the best that any feed, the best time of year that any feed is going to be at its best. And you've got good country in the wet season, and you've got your not so great country further up, and you've got the can choice. I, can, of,
1: I, can I just just yeah? You, you've got good grass in the wet, mm. but in your frontage country, you've got good so grass st- after the wet. So, okay, so it's still yeah, in the – Yeah. See, this yeah. is
0: why it's good to to Because I think obviously, as we discussed off-air before, it's different in different parts of the country, whether we're talking Kimberley, Pilbara, Gascoigne, yeah. Territory, wherever. So I know in some other areas it's pretty more cut and dry that once that wet season goes, it's – okay, so that's answered the question I was wondering. I was thinking that uh, come dry season, your river frontage, you know, is going to be following that same rate of decline – but obviously it's not it's it's hanging around and keeping its quality up longer than obviously what's at the top and so that's why you're choosing to go up top first rather than well, capitalise on. Well
1: you always my advice to people is use your worst country in the wet. Keep your best country till last. And you'll find that your worst country that you use during the wet, having eaten it down or burnt it down, has still got life in it. And, and um, what well, we found that the, when we moved the cattle, it all came to seed anyhow, and and it regenerated the. It wasn't wasn't tall rank grass. It was eaten down. It was sh- short grass with protein, and to to, to um, explain to people that might be listening, we had a clump of grass growing under a fence line. One with the same clump of grass. And the cattle had eaten it on one side, but they couldn't reach the same clump on that side. So we picked the grass, Bob McDonnell, the agronomist. We picked the grass on both sides and sent it away. This side had two percent or three percent protein. This side had oh two percent. That was a tall rank stuff. It had no protein left at all. Whereas this side that had been eaten down had the had the protein.
0: Does that that um concept though about using your worst country during the wet does that really depend on the region you're in and the country type you've got because for some people you know if you're the wet season is their only chance to gain to put kilos on their cattle and then you know whatever you start with cattle generally they're not for for most country types or for a lot of country types cattle aren't gaining weight during the dry season we're just trying to stop them from losing weight like with a urea lick or something so if they're saving that good country until later on in the dry season when it's got less nutritional value they might have lost out their chance to, to gain that weight over the over the wet season if so just is that is this just like a Fitzroy kind of thing or because I'm guess I'm just wondering if that and that if that um, theory can apply to somewhere say like Ona or kuba or Kalguli or somewhere else
1: well it all comes back to stock effect and introduced pastures play a great part in that poor country, what I was telling you about the spear grass, needle grass, corkscrew grass, when we put a boar down there, you know, we before we put introduced pastures there, we put a boar down there and it'd go out there and there about 50 head. Once we started doing this intensive grazing and put the introduced pastures there, 500 head. And you should see the country. It looks like a parkland now. It's all... You know, good green. They love going there now. Before that, they hated it because it was it was just corkscrew grass and needle grass.
0: What and about you know that large parts of the pastoral estate in WA? It's very difficult to get non-native species introduced. I'm not sure when exactly it changed because you're saying you introduced species um, some time ago, but these days you've got to get permits and it's it's quite difficult for a lot of people to be able to introduce species.
1: Well, we were, we were beat the gun. And we got all our stuff in before they stopped that, and they, they barred us from getting it at all. They wouldn't allow us to have it at all. But what, they, what the Ag Department said that um, introduced passes were taking over and ruining the, the country, um, we found if you spell the country and you see it along the side of the main road, that Ferrano's um, been planted there for 50 years. And you walk into the – it's only where the stock effect has been that it's spread. But where there's no stock effect or human effect, it hasn't moved two inches. And and you, you pull up on the side of the road and have a look for yourself. Between here and the um, Robuck Roadhouse, you have a look for yourself and you'll see that there's no Verano gone further further out than the where the human effect's been. So it's it's the same with stock effect. You know, that country was useless before we had the stock effect on it and the introduced pastures, and you should see it now, you know. And all this country that we're talking about, you know, poor country that does need a good, um, they call them legumes, don't they, you know, introduced legume pastures, and the difference is unbelievable.
2: Yeah, and a bigger story, John, that we've been talking about is more so than just that one species uh, introduced or not is that diversity. Mm-hmm. You need to build that diversity, and that's a big aim for us is is to build back that diversity in the landscape of different plant species because you do need a lot of plant species and legumes definitely. We see a lot of wattle around. That's a nitrogen fixer. It's got that function of pushing nitrogen into the ground or trying to. Um, because it's deficient, Uh, and, you know, Verano being, and Stolos being another legume, so they're trying to fulfil that function as well, and, you know, there'd be a bunch of functions and things and a bunch of plants and species that we've kind of lost through time um, with, you know, a legacy of some of the degradation that you're talking about, and, you know, we do need to work towards uh, getting that diversity back, um, which is a great thing that you were doing, and you found... Um, something that you've mentioned to us, John, is that with that rotation that you had in your country, you saw a lot of new species and things. You said you were a big proponent of those, um, the Mulla Mulla ruby bush, um, the blue bush, uh, those species amongst with, with that, um, legume as well with the verano coming back, um. And not just plants, but also animals coming back into the landscape as you did that. So, um, this is kind of where we're going. We want that healthy landscape because that is, that it's going to be resilient against, you know, big events, cyclones and big problem, problematic events that we're seeing a bit more and more. Um, but it's also just health and capacity of that landscape to produce food and, uh, and also look after your, um, your native, Uh, endemic flora fauna Um, and keep it all keep the system healthy and going Mm. Um, so Verano definitely won there but um, I wanted to also ask when you saw the landscape changing with your uh, management with that herd rotation you noticed all of these species changing You've, you've told me about is that a big thing that you saw as a result
1: of all that now looked though um the, the change was unbelievable because we'd been trying to get it to to happen before we started the rotating and it just didn't it didn't show and it wasn't until we started rotating the cattle that that um you know it worked and and one of the um people that worked for the rangeland group actually identified another plant that I didn't even know existed and um it's, it's a, apparently a very important plant too so Just there's things there that I don't, I've never seen and don't know, but it suddenly came up and um, it just proves to you what the rotational movement of the stock achieves.
0: What do you think is actually causing this change? I know, I mean, we can watch videos and read books on rotational grazing or cell grazing and all the variations of it till the cows come home, pun intended. Oh, that probably wasn't the right one, but close enough.
1: Yeah.
0: Um But what from your perspective, was it that you were just giving different parts of the country a chance to rest, or were you thinking the herd impact, the movement of the feces in the urine? You know, what, what was happening from what you could observe that was really impacting that change? Was it the fact that you were well, running them all together rather than in in groups?
1: Well, we didn't have the paddock facilities to have groups we had to have them more than one one mob and on one side we had the Fitzroy River which goes under flood and on the other side the Margaret River and the Leopold River and so we had to get them all off all those rivers so we were very restricted to how we could have our manage our cows so we end up putting them all in.
0: When you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
1: and uh, the only cows that were separate were spoke cows. And um, if we'd had a property further down south, I would have moved the spoke cows straight down there so we could have increased our number of breeders, you know, by using that other other country. But the owners at present have got a golden opportunity because they've got country further south and uh, they could move all their um, like um, out-of-spec, cattle or spay cows or that to other areas to, to allow them to increase their breeder numbers. Just just to put everyone in the picture there, there was so much undeveloped country up the north of Fossil that it carried quite a few extra cattle, um, probably not as many as in that one mob. You'd have to keep the two mobs, the top end mob, separate from the bottom end because of you'd be overstocking the bottom end with... With too many, 6,000 cows was enough in that in that system. If you've got another system going up north, you might even get four 5,000 head of cattle doing the same thing up in the north of paddocks. You might even get more because it's a lot bigger area.
0: Let's talk about your fences. What were you using? Were you like three-strand barb, four-strand barb, plain wire? how far you know pickets with droppers you know how how was the fences oh, set up Three
1: three barb. um when we put four we tried four barb but if a calf got through a four barb chased by a dingo or fright it couldn't get back in to get it to its mother so we just put three barb in so the calf could go under get back to its mother you know pickets were about 7 7 meters apart or you know 7 to 9 meters apart
0: did you find that when you, I suppose there would have been a transition phase trying to get the cattle to learn to run together as one mob um, and to move, that you would move them and they'd want to go back to where they came from or, you know, perhaps not because they were going from grazed country to ungrazed country, but did you have any issues that way, you know, like some, I guess, teething problems?
1: No, no. We just found if we, when we moved the mob and left the gate open, the cows that didn't have their calves, we let them go back and um, close the gate next morning or, or late, at, late at night. And um, they didn't seem to, they all want to go to that fresher country, you know.
2: And that's also, just to jump in there, that's probably also a function of the fact that you did put the mob together. So, I mean, if you had the mob in that, you know, in a significant mob, 6,000 head odd, and they were grazing an area, It would get a fairly good graze. I mean, you, you were saying that you'd move them on once they'd had a good graze of the whole area, but obviously um, you made good notes to me about how you'd always see that there was still, there was still great ground cover on the, uh, to look after that um, ground as well. But essentially the cows could definitely tell the difference, as you said, Steph, between the grazed and ungrazed paddock. So by having them in that mob, that kind of helps at the start because it, it, It's kind of affecting more of that animal impact in the grazed area versus the ungrazed area, so it makes that contrast a bit easier for the animals to even notice. And going back to the whole holistic thing, the whole point came from those mobs were that intense and that kind of big uh, where they were naturally migrating that they would foul an area and then they would move off it because they had fouled it. And if you think Mm. set-stocking is very much... Kind of spreading things out to the extent that they might not even realise that you know it's it's not actually sure. that fouled, and they might not have thought seen that con- as in the mm. the animals might not have seen that contrast well, as
1: easily. So. I, I, I liken you know, it to the massive herds of animals migrating overseas. You know, all the buffaloes and you know what biffards and whatever, whatever um, they moved up, they ate the grass, and then. When it was ready, they came back, you know, and that, that's how the cows sort of um, reacted. They they know what you're doing, you know, and when you wean the calves off them, you know, they knew they they didn't hang around and wait. They might have waited one day and then they were gone, you know, and um, because they they knew the system, you know.
0: How big of an area are we talking? Say, so fossil 400,000 hectares. How big of an area are we, were you rotating your cattle around?
1: Oh, I'd say probably 150,000 hectares.
0: I'm just wondering, and I'm asking that because you know, many people describe cattle as territorial and they want to they have their home country on a station and they want to stay in their home country and I've heard stories of you know buying in cattle from another station and for some people budget you know oh when I've bought these cattle from over here to this station I'm going to budget one or two years for them to walk the fence and try and get back to where they came from or whatever or then there's talk about you know uh bringing cattle in and you know with their social structure you know and then sending them back out to different parts of the station and you know whether or not you should do that because they they're used to living in one type of country and they know that area and they've got their social herds. So I'm just wondering uh, how the cattle dealt with moving around the station when they some when they are allegedly in some t- instances territorial and want that little home patch, or do you think it's because all their mates move with them, like literally well, their they, whole population move with them, that they maybe that.
1: Well, as I said, if you move the lot, you and and then you you know you leave the gates open and then close the gates. The ones you've left behind all end up at the gates waiting to come back in.
0: Hmm. But what I'm just wondering what stops you bring them all in, you leave the gates open so that um, mamas can go back and get bubs if they've left them, you know, a handful of the 6,000. But what stops all 6,000 from turning around and going, now we want to go back to what we thought of as home?
1: Well, it's your regrowth in your pasture that you've moved them after the wet and and those plants still, if there's enough moisture, they still grow. Yeah, you know, and you're getting that. Like I was telling about that bit of grass, clump of grass under the fence. You know, one side had all the protein, the side that hadn't eaten had nothing. So mm. they're, they're not going to eat that. They're not going to eat that rubbish stuff, but they'll go for the the short grass that's been eaten. It's still got protein in it.
0: I'm just trying to think of for people listening. I'm just trying to think of what. Devil's advocate would say to try and go, you know, for oh, why we shouldn't do this, or why it wouldn't work on my property. I always try and put myself in that position to to be the devil's well, advocate.
1: All as I can say to them is try it and persist it, and they won't regret it because it definitely works. I mean, going from um, not having any of those species of plants to what we had when we left, to actually be able to collect the plants by it was only it was a vacuum sucker that was a machine. But instead of going by hand, because we only had few, so few plants, we end up we could use a, a machine to collect them because we didn't have to have to you know walk great distances to get another plant. You know,
0: what were the impacts on the productivity of your cattle and the carrying capacity of your land?
1: Well, look, I, I just um, I didn't go into that. Techn- only you hear stories of what people say and. Um, and um, the results you get, what weights they were. Um, we were selling our cattle fairly young compared to other people for roughly the same weights. Um, you know They were keeping their cattle for two years and over, whereas our cattle were like sold at 15, 18 months. These were 18 months, 24 months. And we were more or less getting the same weight Weight gain, weight average, and when you listen to people talk, you've probably heard of a guy called Kurt Hammer. Mm-hmm. Um, we sent a mob of cattle up to Wyndham to go over ship, and I, I was. This was repeated to me that Kurt Hammer said, "Well, whatever Hen was doing, he's doing it right, you know, because he's he liked the cattle, yeah." And and talking of the cattle and the grazing, Reg Underwood at Munda at Munda Station. He started the same system and he used to boast that he'd never had grass up to the troughs before because he's, he started the same. Um, Tom Quilty, his c- cousin, used to do our mustering and Tom told Reg and Reg started it and uh, he was getting the same results.
2: Just on that, John, um, it's an incredible resource uh, having all, those, all that animal influence right up against your troughs. So it makes sense. You would have a lot of manure there. Before you think of gardening, you told us about your gardening days back, back um, <laughs> in your school days, uh, in between school. And yeah. why not if if you've got if you've got that much manure around your actual troughs, why isn't there grass growing right up to those troughs? So that's well, that's, that's a fantastic it's, indicator. It's of continuous grazing. Yeah,
1: continuous grazing is why you don't have it. and
2: trampling. So giving it a chance, giving yeah. it a break, you'd actually see a lot of recovery in those areas because there's a lot of material. Um, but, John, there was a few things in there, and, oh, jeez, I've just about forgotten them now. Oh, the bigger story of how well the cattle were doing, you you were saying how you were bringing back a lot of species and you are seeing that diversity of species. We know that that biodiversity adds resilience to our landscapes. Um, there's a bloke by the name of Fred Provenzo who talks about how that's, you know, it adds to a lot of the diet of the animal as well, um, and I'm pretty sure a lot of more informed cattle people than myself that myself uh, would know um, that a diverse diet is going to help, help kind of cattle production, right? You're going to have more um, beneficial little bits and pieces in your diet. Um, and frankly, I like to think of that uh, in my own sense if I was only given, uh, whether it's just broccoli or just donuts, if that's all you ate, you're not going to be very healthy. But if you had a diverse range of different plants and things growing, you'd, you'd be a pretty healthy little, little cow. Kicking mm. around the rangelands, um, which I think is what you've mm. kind of described to me, is is what you saw, and you could see it in the animals as well, John. You were saying yeah, you yeah. could see the health of the animals,
1: so the shine, the shine on their coats all year. You know that, you know that's a good sign. You know, and um, I, look, I, 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 I just um, I've never tried to push it because it was a thing we've done and when the landline asked me to do a thing because mm-hmm. we were leaving and uh, my heart wasn't in it, I didn't really want to, you know, go into it and, um, but I just, I wish, uh, I wish the people would up here would try it and further further down south and as Jardine says, um, what's his name, Bassini?
0: Oh yeah, oh, Evan Pensini, yeah. Evan's yeah, yeah, doing something similar. He's yeah. doing Plains. incredible
1: he, work at chez. He's, do, he's, he's doing he's doing cell grazing, I think. With we, we we couldn't do um cell grazing because of our country type, the black soil and all that and was was just too would have been too too costly putting all that infrastructure in for that amount of cattle. Mm. You know.
2: And again, coming back to another thing you've told me a few times, John, is that you do need to find that pattern that works for each context, which is a big thing that holistic management tells us to do and be wary of. Um, And look, it's incredible seeing, um, you know, the same tool, that animal impact, uh, that animal effect and that good husbandry down at Chila Plains. And I have not seen stands of, um, of grass so close together as I did down there and it, it's incredible mm. how close the spacings are, and that's a that's a really fundamental observation that Alan Savory makes in his work is that mm. you mm. see that increasing density of vegetation as it as it increases in that complexity and also that health uh, because yeah you're just yeah. And you're capturing more energy it's more yeah. going into the, the system
1: the, the properties that have got all one type of pasture more like these coastal countries you know, a lot of wattle and all that um, I wish that they would try this system but, but introduce a lot of you know, introduce a lot of seed and, and have a burning system going that they didn't have hot burns and I'll show you afterwards what hot burns create but when you drive down through all that country that coastal country, if you're up high enough you can see the tops of big old trees that were, you know, great big trees and now it's getting lower and lower and the scrub's getting lower and lower and, and um, you know, if you, if you do the stocking and burning and seeding, I'm sure this country would nearly double its production if they introduced those species and gave it a try but no-one's willing to try it.
0: What was the change in your carrying capacity from the 80s to when you left in 2015? What was the change in numbers that you were no, able to No, we carry? kept
1: – it was pretty pretty static, pretty stationary because we weren't getting really good wets and we just – we were waiting to – we tried to get the grant that Pigeonhole got and we were going to put a pipeline in, a tank and pipeline, it cost us $2 million to do, you know, big water pipe. We weren't going small because we had a lot of trouble with lime water blocking up pipes and a lot of people have had the same trouble, Beetaloo and, you know, mm. and Pigeonhole got it and they stood their system with this cell grazing type thing or whatever they did and I said to the the guy that was in charge of it, oh, what new species of plants have come up? And he said none and I said, well, it's not working, is it? And because he they were doing the rotational grazing but they were doing it um, too constantly and they didn't give the pastures enough time to 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 seed again, you know, whereas this this method of intent, uh, intensive grazing or holistic management gives the pastures time enough to new species to come up.
2: Just on that observation one, sorry Steph, but one to jump in that I've been asked before and I know people will ask these kind of technical things of you, John, and Again, trying to bring it back to the broad observation, but um, what kind of level of grass would you see uh, the stock eat down to before you actually move them? And obviously, that's going to change with different seasons. But did you see them have a good crack at most of the pasture? You saw it, you know, half basically mowed down.
1: Or? No, no, it was all it was all done on the type of season you had. You know, mm. you. you if we had a big wet we couldn't process the cattle early, we had a wait. If we had a light year, we processed the cattle early. And when they came back in we just opened up more gates and just let them spread a bit through, you know, a couple of you know, the holding paddocks and you know, we didn't have other big paddocks, but we just threw the lanes and holding paddocks and we just let them spread out a bit, you know. So mm-hmm. to
0: to jump in and play devil's advocate again. If you didn't increase your carrying capacity over the 30 years that you were doing this, I suppose some people may ask, well, why do it then? Why have the extra work of moving your cattle around and, yeah, you've got some new species and some more grass, but you didn't actually allow yourself to run any more head? Well, or could you have and you just chose to be conservative? And I'm
1: no, we we chose to be conservative, but we were looking after the country and and the condition of our stock. Told us that we were doing the right thing. You look at those people that, if we'd increased our number, we would have had poor stock. You know, like. All so, the-
0: on the flip side, perhaps then, if you had made no changes after that flood in 83, 84. To be able to keep cattle in the condition that they were when you left, you would have had to drop numbers then, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it, you,
0: it was unsustainable the number you were at.
1: Well, the cattle were a lot poorer, and before we introduced this system, we were putting out over 150 ton of lick, and we end up only we didn't wasn't intentional, but we we're only getting 50 ton at the end because the cattle didn't need it. Yeah. So that that. 150 tonne, It's like $1,000 a tonne. How many extra cattle have you got to breed to, to in yeah. those days, yeah. bring that amount of money in? You know, there's so many different... Um,
0: ways to look ways at it.
1: Ways to look at it. And But this, what ours was, was just a start. It wasn't the finish, it was a start. And, and that's why I didn't want to do any, any um, interviews or anything before because it wasn't... Um, I knew all these sort of questions had come up, and I couldn't answer. And that's why Bob McDonald was helping; a great help because he understood all the technical stuff. You know, as I said, I'm only hammer, hammer and spanner man. And um, but the, 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 the part that we we were happy with was the condition of the stock, and that's what really worried us more than anything. And the condition of the paddocks, you know, and. and the condition of the paddocks was really becoming, you know, really good.
2: It's an incredible tale. And, and look, I had the fortune uh, of going out there in recent years and um, working on some um, kind of water ponding. We are looking at some water ponding stuff with the guys. That was awesome. Um, And I didn't notice an incised creek on the block, which is, you know, a real testament to, like you said, a good, healthy system that didn't have too much erosion and runoff. So you've got intact soil that's holding the system together. You've got functional soil and it's not eroding. Um, and your creek lines were holding up, which is an incredible thing. Um, and on the actual numbers, John, um, are from this fantastic book uh, called They Rose to the Challenge, which is something that um, will be coming out. It's... Um, Alex Campbell's book there. It's a fantastic book and he notes um, some numbers in there but, uh, and these are probably something, some work from um, Bob and, and the gang around you. But that quality of stock um, and the health of the stock, you're saying less lick, uh, but you also had incredible increases in your weaning rates. Um, you've got numbers in there that used to be around the just over 50% mark with the short horns right up to something more around the 80% mark with your droughties. So a big thing that we try and get to with, uh, and and a big drive behind the kind of regenerative movement that's really pushing and getting up a lot of steam these days is actually profitability because we need people to be profitably producing food on the land while looking after the landscape, which is exactly what you've described to us today. And maybe there wasn't an increase in carrying capacity per se uh, on the page, as it were, but you did kind of increase that carrying capacity in in the quality of the stock, the quality of the landscape, and I dare say that would, without going into it, obviously, John, I know that's a, you know your private business, but going into that profitability, it would have increased the profitability and viability of that business to continue looking after that landscape in the way that you were doing, because you were seeing higher weaning rates um, and better quality stock out of that. And that also feeds into a plethora of other things with, you know, market opportunities. If, you know, you're saying how poor, uh, how limited the market opportunities are, especially up here in the Kimberley and how, you know, if you do have out of spec kind of stock or or, um, you kind of don't quite meet some of those marks, then it makes it even harder to move stock. Mm. And that makes it harder to adjust those stock when you need to, which is something that you also mentioned.
1: Well, just in um, answer to Steph's question about uh, increase in stock and all that, after we left, they put more waters in, and they had 25,000 head on the same country that we had. And the cattle I saw going through the sale yard were magnificent. Mm. So you know, what more do you want, you know, um, because if we could have afforded what, you know, the new owners have done, it just tells you the story. And I flew over all that country the other day and it still looks... Amazing. It doesn't look eaten out or anything, yeah.
0: Yeah. And, you know, carrying capacity is just one metric and I've always got to play devil's advocate, but I suppose another one we could have used is kilos of beef turned off the property and I'm sure the amount of kilos you were turning off each year from uh, the early 80s to, you know, 2015, that surely would have increased as well with how
1: many kilos We always sold what we branded the following year. You know, if we branded 4,500 or 4,800 or 5,000, we always sold that number the next year. So we didn't have deaths or anything, you know, large numbers of deaths. We had... A little bit of botulism now and again. We used to needle it all the time. But for some reason or other, we used to get one or two or three die of botulism, you know, because I used to fly over that country all the time and I'd see them. And, um, you know, you'd see the remains of cows. And people say, oh, you can't, but you can in that country, you know, because the other thing is that people don't, understand that with this rotational grazing, when we went to fossil, when I went to fossil there wasn't a tree on the black soil plain, hardly a tree. And now there's trees growing everywhere. And where we put fence lines up and all that because of the flooding was all open. And now you go there and it's all all the trees of um and the local um what's what was his um shore? What's um
2: Russell Shaw. Oh. Yeah, he couldn't G'day, believe Russell. he
1: couldn't believe the regrowth of trees we've got or they have now got coming back on, on fossil because of the rotation of the grazing and the cool burning. Cool burning kills everything, you know.
2: Hot hot burning. Look, we haven't really touched on the... We haven't touched on...
1: Hot (laughs) hot burning kills everyone. We've had John for a long
2: time. (laughs) We're we're trying to get all these pearls of wisdom onto this recording. John, we haven't really touched on the fire side of things, but just quickly, obviously, um, you did see a lot of traditional burning practice uh, back in your day growing up um, out there near Nookumbar and going out on bush with... uh, on on country with... with, uh, with countrymen, um, and hunting, doing all that good stuff. Um, and you've been a big proponent of cool burning as it leaves your landscape intact. And obviously, something that we try to be good, um, proponents of here at NRM as well is right way fire and just, you know, avoiding that hot fire is essentially that first, uh, the first aim of that to reduce hot, hot fires, which do reduce everything to ash, literally. Um, So, yeah, I'm not sure if that's something that we've got a bit of time to just quickly ask you about or what do you reckon, Boss Steph? Is that all right? (laughs) Oh, fantastic. Um, Well, look, uh, John, you would go along and do some cool fire. So you said if you couldn't eat it, you needed to burn it. This is is all feeding into the part of the regenerative um, process that you had uh, on the station. So you would go through, you would have animal impact. One thing is that we don't have the ability to move numbers too easy in in the Kimberley or or you didn't have that ability to change numbers. So if you had a seasonal, uh, quite a spike in growth from a big season um, or essentially you would always be at a conservative level of stock so that you could get through in the lighter years, you then have a surplus of uh, material that was grown in the bigger years, um, and look as uh, holistic management and things like that have, have made it quite clear. Um, you know, we a lot of these grasslands evolved to have something to knock that material down; otherwise, it stands and just oxidizes its standing um, dead material after it's grown, and without a fire. Um, which our traditional First Nations people used um, as a tool to cycle that um, without something, eating it or cycling it with fire, it just got in the way of productivity for the next season. So that's something you employed quite a lot as well. Was that on a lot of the country or is that throughout the country, little patches of country? How did you go um, about
1: that? We did it over the whole property except the... Um, that grass I told you we couldn't burn because it was too green to burn, and the cool burn, and then when it got to hot, right time to burn, if you lit that up, the whole country would go up. So we just used to use stock to try and knock that down, but um, with the hot burning, what people don't look at is they always just look at the vegetation, but they don't look at the insects and the animals in the bush that help keep the whole ecology going and you've got to have insects to keep some of the animals alive because mm-hmm. they only eat insects if you've got no insects and in answer to that there was a big fire between Mandora and Pardu years ago before the Bitchman road and I was driving down and all the poor dead guanas that were dying along the side of the road because of the hot fire, they had nothing left to eat. You know, there wasn't a blade of grass, there wasn't a green tree, there wasn't And the guanars were just dying in the hundreds along the road. And if that had been cool burn, you know, the guanars can climb up the trees and get away and the insects can get up in the trees and survive. But when these hot burns come and all the the timber's getting stunted as well, you know, um, you can... can, People don't realise it, but... uh, um, I've told them to... I wrote a story up and I told them to slow down and have a good look because they all drive past at 110 k an hour and say, oh, look at that lovely bush, you know, look at all that. And it's it's all just dense, short scrub. There's no, if you look up above it, you'll see where these magnificent trees should be, you know. Mm. And uh, and the, you've only got to look at the fires down south at Yarloop and all through that country, what the damage that the hot burns have done to the trees, you know. And mm. the same up here, you know. You you look you have a good look you know I don't know where Stephanie's driving to next. Where are you going to next? Shamrock. Shamrock. you have down the
2: coast, so you might
0: yeah. see some things.
1: Yeah, right. well, you have a look at the have a look at the top of the tree levels when you're driving down, and you'll see those big, what were big old trees. Don't look at the stinkwood trees, or those um, helicopter trees. They've got nothing, but you can pick out the other trees and. You'll see see what I mean about the old, the real good old trees and, um, um, you know, people just, they've got these dreams that have heard of stories about all these professors and ideology people think of, but no one's actually looking at the true picture of what's happening in the bush.
2: Mm. That's a big point, John, and look, we all want to work towards a more diverse and more productive and healthy landscape, and that includes often in depending on your country type, but often up here that's an open savanna. That's mm. what the First Nations people had, uh, and you know that had a variety of trees that would have produced a bunch of fruit and things like that. And look, it might have been even different again um, pre any people in the in the Australian landscape, and you know that's a change again. But with our fire management um essentially you've described how you used to make sure that material was kept cycling and you Mm. kept kept those trees alive kept them out of harm's way essentially from those hot fires and that was a key one um and look you made a really good point about the insects and i'm a bit of a soil nerd um so i'll add that you know those insects are then themselves feeding off a lot of the soil kind of biology that's going on there and then Essentially, by having that rotational system, by avoiding hot fires and having that rest in between the good animal impact that then moves off and leaves things to rest, you can help that system stay in a real healthy state of a balanced kind of fungal bacterial kind of uh, soil biology and really help that soil um, grow the right kind of mycorrhizae and goodies and things that it needs to support those trees but also have the bacteria and goodies that are needed to cycle nutrients for the grasses and things. And we can have one of the most productive landscapes ever is that open savanna. So, um, yeah, look, that's keeping in mind that bigger picture that we're working towards a healthy landscape that can really um, provide for a lot.
0: Shall we jump to a quick yarn about infrastructure and you can ask your questions about waters before we start wrapping this up?
2: Sounds bueno. Um, do you want me to shoot now? Yeah, look, yeah, yeah. Uh, so John, I had a bit of a question. Um, One I've been wondering and a few other people have been wondering and we've kind of touched on it and I think I might have asked you before but just for the benefit of the uh, listen listening clientele. Um, waters. So we've talked about water points and you said that you got to a bit of a point where you couldn't water more than that 6,000 head of stock. You have also described to me how in some of those paddocks you would have had quite a number of waters set up spread out along the, through the middle of the paddock, away from the fences, as you've described, to keep stock away from those fences, but also to make sure you've got good utilisation of the paddock. John, you described that you had something like about 20-odd waters in some of those paddocks. Was that about right?
1: In one in the uh, the wet paddock in the cow paddock, yes, right. Okay, because so they,
2: see, mob of yeah. six thousand. They've got a bunch of waters to choose from over the kind of limited period of time that they're in there, so they can kind of spread out through that country yeah. and kind of affect their you know hooves, mouths, and um, all that goodness uh, on the whole countryside. Um, what are the actual? What did the waters? What did your water system look like? Did you have, you know, um, those tank and saucer troughs? Did you have, you know, normal troughs? Did you make them by hand? Were they anything in particular that you'd uh, throw out to all the crew listening that are probably trying to work, try, oh, no, that no, want to know is, those nuts and
1: bolts? We, no, we had we had we had a few dams, you know, but some of them we were closing off and putting. Um, Pumps on like solar pumps and overflow back into the dam. Oh yeah. Stop because the dams were a bit boggy. Um, any money we got, we, that's what we started to do. Mm. But the waters out in the middle of the paddock, we try to keep them about five kilometres apart. And um, we found with the omni grazing, it gave the. If you look in the corner of a paddock, it's all flogged out and not a blade of grass left. Where's the omni grazing, it, it doesn't not-so-severe impact on your on your country if you've got that omni-grazing rather than the, the corners.
0: What is – sorry, what is omni-grazing? I haven't heard that terminology before.
1: Circular. You know, like, like – I think it's omni, isn't it? Oh, Mate, oh, I, think I think it's a th- new term <laughs> that's going to come in. It's the new okay. thing. So that, omni that having the waters
0: in the centre of the paddock and them grazing out of that radius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Rather, yeah. Than, yeah. okay. Rather, rather than – okay. Rather than the corner. corner. Yeah.
1: And mm-hmm. – um, because what we found, you know, you've got waters in the corner, if you've got other cattle in the paddock, there's more fence damage. They they're going the same, not in our country so much, but up in the Northern Territory where it's, the timber's really thick and um, they're trying to get their lick out. They can only put their lick on two places, and that's on both roads coming down the fence lines. So the cattle are not, they're not in as good condition as they should be because if they could have that... Um, You're
2: not utilising the not whole block. and
1: I, su- I suggest they put an arc around, a kilometre out from the bore, they put an arc of a road around so they could keep spacing their lick out instead of putting it on the one line all the time because it meant the cattle had to walk there and they weren't getting the benefit of the... By the time they'd walked there and then gone back out to the grass, they weren't getting the benefit of the lick. Yeah. Mm, of knows. course
2: and not getting that spread of grazing impact as well um look there's another one there john so uh, you you've did you ever shut off the waters and would have you would you have considered shutting off waters as a way to try and help stop move along from you know from one end to the other or something
1: like yeah, that yeah well we did we did um we just shut them off and they they all knew and because the waters was reasonably close they knew not you just fly over there with an the aeroplane in the afternoon, and
2: and yeah, um, push them onto the other one.
1: They all they all went. You know they all knew. So. Yeah, awesome. And the, the troughs we, we used with, uh, when I went to Fossil, they had big long troughs. Um, um, that when you cleaned them out, or when the cattle drank the amount of water coming to the trough, the cattle just trod in the trough and put all the dirt. in, so we made shorter, deeper troughs and uh, the tanks we put on a metre-high mound ring so we had more pressure, and we found the shorter, deeper trough watered the cattle just as quickly as a as a long trough, and there was no standing in the trough and pushing each other out and trying to get a drink with the water dribbling into the trough. They, um, the trough always had water in it.
2: Nice, that's a good one. That's a nice mm, well, bit of nuts and bolts to, there as to well. To back
1: that up, a guy down in um, the Pilbara... Um, uh, he's I rang him up and said, oh, what are you building short trough for? And he said, you should know because we were doing it too, you see. <laughs> nice. He had, the, he had the same, no, um, Don Hoare, or oh, Don Hoare. Yeah. yeah.
0: Who's that, Balfour? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. So, yeah.
2: And deeper, trying to minimise that kind of solar exposure as well, trying to keep that water a bit cooler perhaps as well. If it's sitting in the tank longer, then it's going to stay a bit yeah, yeah. cooler. Bigger volume of water yeah. as well, so I can imagine that's going to help. And
1: we yeah. we made our own cement mold to build troughs, and we made it so you could put a short trough, or if we wanted a longer trough near a yard, or like when we put a big mob of cattle into a cooler, we had a bigger, longer trough. And but um, the same, a little bit of the same thing happened. They drink the trough down, and then they would start walking into the trough, so it was better just to have that. It better to have two short troughs and one big long trough. You know.
2: Cool. Look, that's a really handy tip. And you that's did... in the
1: coolers. The coolers only. You know. Yeah. And in the yard, we had the same short troughs, but we had a, you know, um, if you can have a continuous pipeline. Same with your sprinklers. If you can have a continuous pipeline rather than a, a spear going off, you get a better flow of water with a continuous pipeline rather. Than, I found this out afterwards. You know. Um, we used to run three or four sprinklers at Fossil, and and um, on a two inch, three inch pipeline off water, and down at the farm I've got an inch and a half, and I'm running seven sprinklers, all at once. So it tees yeah, back it, into it into where your pump. Yeah, yeah. You're putting it back in. In putting it into your your circle. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. So, oh, that's very so. interesting. That's another good bit of farm engineering. Farm engineering.
1: a guy told me that, and it works. You know.
2: Yeah, cool. Now, look, that's great. Handy, handy tip. Um, yeah. pearls of wisdom, John, for, uh, for all those, uh, young players. Um, and look, you did describe, uh, you have it, had a bit of calcium, so a bit of limescale issue with some of your water up there, which you would, because there's some big limestone outcrops on fossil downs. this big old Devonian reef. Um, and I've seen that core, uh, form kind of f- coral reef-looking stuff in big pipes in mining situations as well. It's, it's pretty impressive. Um, can have an effect. So, look, even then you would turn those waters off, but you said that you'd only turn them off for a time and then kind of hopefully keep them going. But, yeah, yeah. Um, look, it reminds me of um, another really impressive operation that we mentioned before um, down at Sheila Plains in the Pensines. Um Fantastic efficiency with having the stock only using a a small number of waters, it might be one or two waters at a time or so, rather than using all the waters across the property and having to endlessly do runs out to check every single trough. Did you find it a bit of an efficiency gain in only really having to attend to, even though there's 20 waters, there's 20 waters in that one paddock that you'd go out to uh, at a time? Was that a big thing that you noticed? Oh,
1: yeah, well, half the year you didn't have to worry about it.
2: Yeah, awesome.
1: While the cattle were out of that paddock, you, you didn't have to worry. You could just take your time, do all the maintenance you wanted, get them all ready for when they came back in and, and um, cut the costs mm. right down. Yeah,
2: yeah. look, and that cost factor being a big one, mm. um, you know, if you can actually be more efficient with that maintenance, then that would have in itself a big kind of productivity and, and yeah. profitability um, benefit there. So, look, that's a cool one to know. Um so basically you had those short troughs and you had a number of them spread out for uh the number of cattle that you had going through They're there. Only in the holding
1: paddocks, like we tried in the coolers near the yard, you know, you'd- Yeah. You'd, you'd want to put more in, you know. Sure, but even in the, the big paddocks, you'd have those
2: those troughs yeah, and you yeah. had a number of water points spread yeah. out. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, cool. And, look, that was the big one that I wanted to ask you about, your waters and, um, look, waters being a big one and waters being, uh, you know, probably a little bit more important than your wire. Perhaps some would say. I've heard people talk about how your, your wire is only as good as your water. Um, so, look, that was the main one that I just wanted to ask about and hopefully that's of use to some of the crew that are designing waters and look I think it's a big area um, coming from the hydrosphere myself um, pipes and things get very expensive and it's worthwhile putting a good bit of thought into it um, ooh, one that you did mention before was having a little track between your waters even if they're in the middle of the paddock just so that cattle can find their way between them um,
1: oh, a road, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a little road, road yeah. um,
2: obviously with no windrows, mm. um, that you'd have between, and a few henwood humps uh, if needed, between those to help them find it. So look, that was the, they're the ones I wanted to... Um, but if, if there's no great
1: cattle pad, we used to put a road in. And Reg Underwood did the same thing. He put a road between his waters to walk the cattle, you know, made it so much easier. And the cattle, once you put them on the road, they knew, they just... that. Head off, you know. Mm.
0: For our final question and this station sticky beak, John, can you just leave us with some parting advice for any other station manager or owner listing out there?
1: Just try it. But don't don't just try it one year. Try it for a couple of years because it'll probably take a little while with certain types of country and certain rainfall, it might take a little bit longer. But I'd give it a go because I'm sure that they'll find out it'll work with it might take them a bit extra lick or it might you know it needs introduced if you've got poor type sandy country you'll need introduced pastures but persist with it and I'm sure it'll work for you